Welcome to the Volrath Feed, the show that brings you into the world of commercial food service. We talk about everything and anything as part of this huge industry. I'm Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company, and as always, joining me is our producer, Justin Pearson. Hello, hello. Hello, Justin. How are things? Oh, fantastic. All right. You know, Justin, I was thinking about the show, and, you know, man, we have had some really, really good guests. So I thought early on in this show, I wanted to give a shout out to Christina Wagner at Volrath. Christina has put together really a lot of really top-notch guests. If you look at our lineup, it is, it's pretty all-star. Yeah, and it's, it's really kind of stretching the gamut of food service, and we really have been getting some diverse people as well. Right, and I know, I know she really thinks a lot about making sure that it's not all chefs and it's, it's a diverse part of the industry, and that's why when we say in the beginning of this all that we talk to that whole world of commercial food service, that's the fact. And we've had, you know, people from like auto quotes, right? That people sometimes don't even know what auto quotes is maybe. And, and we featured uh, Jim Contardi from mm-hmm. auto quotes. We've had certainly a lot of chefs and people that are doing great things. We've had uh, people from the parts side. So really just a good diverse lineup. And as I look at what we've got coming up, um, just another all-star lineup coming ahead here. So if anybody is looking at some of our past episodes, they really are worth a listen if you haven't uh, listened to them. And uh, one of my favorites I mentioned before is really our episode about the guest quotes. I think that's mm-hmm. really a, a good episode. I've got a look. I, I seriously have them hanging on my wall. I love reading them. I think they're really insightful and make you think. And that's good. That's, a, that's what a quote should do, something that inspires and gets thought. Yeah. Well, and they go further than just that because you get the story behind them. You get the background on why they're meaningful to that person. There's just much more to it that, that adds to the meaning. Right, right. So today's show, as we, as we look at who's coming today, we have uh, another fantastic guest. Yeah. Uh, Chef Gail Gand is going to be yeah. with us later on the show. Someone who's done just a ton of different things. If you read up on her at all, she has done so much. And another example of someone who got a job as a young person in the industry one night something went sideways and she was called into the kitchen and you know a lot of that comes this career and the things that she's done is are really quite amazing she's been on the food network hosting sweet dreams for eight years mm-hmm. she's been on uh, many other shows with chefs she's she actually did a cooking show baking with julia child yeah as a as a pastry chef or a chef you i mean that's that's up there right she is she's big time well yeah you know the Outstanding pastry chef from James Beard Foundation. Right. Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. You know, she's been, oh, I mean, it's just a laundry list of accolades, and it's really quite impressive. And, yeah, I'm I'm quite honored to have her on the right. show and, and to share a bit of her experiences and, and expertise and, and to hear about what she's got going on now and what mm-hmm. the future holds for her. And not just on the celebrity side. She's done a lot. She's done restaurants. Right. And, and really you know well-known restaurants in chicago area she ran true yeah, true right? right right for a while you know james beard i think we mentioned and the michelin uh stars that that was something i i i'll admit i didn't know as much as i wanted to know about so i did a little research before the show and i always wondered like michelin star you know what is it where is it i knew it was like european or something but i didn't really understand the whole thing and it was kind of interesting really to to learn about so Michelin star. If I say Michelin, do you, what do you think of? Well, yeah, I, it, 
You always think of the the marshmallow tire looking guy. <laughs> right, <laughs> tires. Right, Michelin tires, and that's actually who sponsored it. Ah, it yeah. was a way uh, back in the day, early days of auto travel, that they were looking to promote tourism or travel with autos. So they put out a a rating system or a um, a listing of restaurants that people should drive to and try. So that's how this rating started with the Michelin star. I always wondered that as a kid. That was my one association with the with the name Michelin. And, mm-hmm. and then you hear about Michelin star restaurant, and you're like, no, they can't be related. They can't be associated. Right. That just that doesn't seem to fit. I know. I thought the same thing. And it is, in fact, absolutely true. And if you look at the plaque that they, they saw online that um, I've never been to a Michelin star restaurant, so I'll tell you that. But there's a plaque that they write on there. It's the Michelin, so very familiar. And the, the way that they they go about it, so if you think about also the other respected, if you will, rating system is AAA, the Diamonds, mm, Five yeah. Diamond. So another auto association that's doing ratings of restaurants and hotels and things for people to travel to. So it, I guess it fits. It's a good way to get their own brand out there. With Why not? Right. So as I was doing my research, as I said, I came across some interesting facts about the Michelin Award. Oh, all right. And... Uh, What's, what's a bit surprising, if you think of, of areas of the world that are known for really good restaurants, what, what are what, some of the areas you think of? Big country. Traditionally, you, you, go, to, you go to France, right, right? Exactly. They lead the way with 29 three-star Michelin. So actually, we should probably talk about that first. So the rating is one, two, or three stars. So in their guide, it says one star signifies a very good restaurant. Two stars signifies excellent cooking that is worth a detour. So, again, playing into the whole travel thing, right? Right. And three stars means exceptional cuisine that is worth a special journey. Ah, so that's when you plan your trip around. Right. So three stars is the top. So, France, you nailed it. Number one. United States, just for a point of reference, 14. Hmm. So less than half. Huh. Well, obviously, they haven't watched diners, drive-ins, and dives. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> There's tons of three-star <laughs> dives uh, out there. <laughs> not sure about that, but... Uh, <laughs> worth the trip. Worth the Special trip. trip. Well, you know what? In that rating I mean, come system... On. It fits that whole motor association road trip vibe that they're trying to put off, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would I would say there are a couple that qualify for worth a special journey, but maybe not for the quality of the cuisine, but <laughs> for the uniqueness of it. I mean, have you been to the place in Sheboygan yet that has the big rolls like the one pound of bacon on a BLT. I, I have not. That's the place hard to go to lunch. That. A pound of bacon. One pound of bacon on a BLT. Oh, my gosh. I'm surprised we haven't had, uh, what was that guy who did the show where it was the big food items and he eat them? Oh, oh. Um, was it Adam, uh, Adam something, right? Adam Richman. Uh, uh, man versus food, right? Yeah, right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at the list, then, uh, then the others kind of fall in line. Italy, you'd expect. Spain, Germany, uh, United Kingdom, Hong Kong, the Netherlands, all kind of falling way off to two and one stars. So the other thing, though, that is is interesting, in the United States with our 14, if we was going to say to you food cities in the U.S., what would you guess? I imagine it's probably coastal, you know. Right. East or West. Good. Yep. Big city, yeah. right? New York. Yeah, New York's, yeah. That's, seems that's pretty a big obvious. one, right? 
they have five three-star wow. Michelin restaurants. Hmm. The other big one, you hit it on the head that the other coast was? You got your pick of a couple, but I think you're going to get it's, it. It's probably got to be, yeah, I would, what's big enough? I mean, it's not going to be Northwest. It's probably, you know, California. Right. Well, come on, uh, I got faith in you. Mm, I always I'm feel gonna, good about these because I usually can throw this stuff at you, and you're really good at uh, figuring <laughs> well, it out or knowing it. One of the best eating trips I've been on was when I was in San Francisco. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, you got it. Yep. all right. Okay. San Francisco, but, seven. I, I didn't go to any Michelin places, but I mean, <laughs> I, I I ate very well there. Yep. Seven Michelin, three-star wow. Michelin restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area. What's the criteria? Uh, how does it How does it go about getting judged? I mean, okay. what, how does that work? The next, <laughs> this is uh, falling right in line then? Okay. The next area that I was finding interesting was how they're evaluated. And Michelin does it entirely different. When it's AAA or some of the others, these people, it can be known that they're coming in. Hmm. It can be, they can tip the person off. They can be recognized because they've been interviewed and admitted to being a judge or someone who rates the restaurants. Sure. But Michelin, all secretive. Nobody knows who the Michelin raters are, the judges are. Then they even get a heads up that they're coming. Nope. Mm. Nope. You have no clue. Next thing you know, you must receive a... And Gail's restaurant, she was in a a one-star, I believe, in Chicago area. I think it was a one. But she might have some insight into that when we get to her a little bit. Huh. So they just secret shop the place and you don't know? (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Wow. That is it. And they're professionals. This is who they work for. This is what they do. But they do it all anonymously. Man. Which that's that's pretty pretty tough, right? That, that is I, every given any person walking through the door could be a Michelin star. You just got to have your A game all the time. Judge. That's how, right. do, how does one get that kind of gig? Does it just become like you know any other job? We were just like, oh, we got to go eat amazing food again today. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, if I have to eat another plate of foie gras, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so help me, if I have to eat another thing with white truffle. <laughs> Uh, scallops again, uh, <laughs> or whatever, right? No, you're, that's, I don't know how they do it. And again, maybe we'll learn something when yeah. we get to talk to Gail a little bit here. But I just thought it was interesting when people talk about Michelin, I really didn't know all the details. So, you know, you can ask the Google these days for just about anything. And well, that's what we learned. So, yeah, interesting. And again, triple A's I'm reading here, they are employees hired specifically to rate the hotels and restaurants that they go into. It's a different rating, I guess. One to five diamonds, of course, on the AAA ratings. There's Forbes, Travel Guide. Those are professionals. And also self-reporting by the restaurant. So how does that work? Yeah, Mm. we're good. We're really good. (laughs) (laughs) That's Forbes. Zagat, public, 100% by just public reviews. And in today's world, man, if you don't do everything right, people can be brutal. Even if you do everything right, they still can be brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I bet a lot of these... Everybody's a critic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I bet a lot of these these uh, professional raiders, you know, they have to have some sort of training, I would imagine. Wouldn't suspect there's some kind of like college for ratings. You know, <laughs> you don't you don't go to be uh, some sort of specialist. But yeah, there's got to be some sort of training. And honestly, I think it might be beneficial to the general public in order to be able to rate a place like through Yelp or TripAdvisor or something like that. You've got to pass some sort of basic course. <laughs> That allows you to, to really critically analyze the service and food that you're getting at a place, so that you you just don't 
go off and, and bash someplace just because you got an axe to grind. Well, that's exactly what happens. You know it, right? I My know, mom's I restaurant, know. it happens all the time. She actually had a customer that went so far as to say, if you don't, I forget what it was. He wanted a discount off his steak or something. He claimed it wasn't his prime rib, I think it was. If we, If she didn't, he was going to post it all over social media. Just like that, he said it to her. So she said, thank you very much. Have a good night. And he walked out the door, and we waited, and we were going to respond and just, you know, be honest on the response, and it never happened. So empty threat. Well, that's the thing. You can't we, – we're, we're not going to be bullied. Right. We're, we're not going to be blackmailed by a review. Mm-hmm. You know, the, people think they have so much power with their reviews, and times they do, but that's the other side of that coin is a, a lot of – smaller restaurants, mom and pop places, they don't necessarily have the PR training to handle these. So it ends up blowing up bigger and just going down a very dark rabbit hole very quickly. And they end up making themselves look worse if they hadn't handled the situation in in a proper manner. No, it's a very emotional business. Tensions run high, stress is there. And uh, sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to just take somebody who's normally a pretty even-keeled person, kind of push them over a little bit, and then if someone's got a cell phone and they record oh, man, you're right, it's downhill quick. So you really have to be – that's a great point. You really should be training your staff and being diligent about that training on how do you handle those tough customers. It used to be if you had the luxury to train, you train on some things, but that's almost turning into a necessity just yeah. to handle difficult guests that you know are going to have that phone up recording and mm-hmm. – and really could do some big damage. So yeah. I'm going to have to talk to my mom about making sure that we do something there, just that people are aware. It, it behooves any establishment to have some sort of basic training on how to, to handle those types of customers. And But really, I think the, the whole paradigm is shifting about the customer's always right. Because businesses are starting to recognize that, no, the customer's not always right. You're I'll not. Tell you. There's a, there's a time when you're not worth it. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think that's the key to when things like that happen as a business, you need to respond. Mm-hmm. You need to be active on the social media platforms and respond to those things. And I think if I'm reading them, you can clearly read which person's just grinding the axe because right. everything suddenly from the moment they walked in the door was horrible all the way through. Well, if it was that bad, why'd you even sit down? Yeah. But they're going to go on this whole story. Everybody was rude, and, and you can just see some people are like that. Some people, you know, I had one that I responded to a little while back, and um, they had some actually constructive criticism in there. And I thanked them, as I always respond, and um, said, you know, we'll try to do that better. Thanks for, for the reply. And, and, and it is appreciated. It really is. And there's there's so many times, I'll bet, when if 100 people walk out the front door and the person saying goodbye says, how is it? there's a lot of people that'll say it was good or great. Thanks right. for everything. And, and they probably had something they could have said, but people generally don't want to. Yeah. So it's, it's good it's, to get feedback. Yeah. It is good to get feedback. And, and there is some genuine positive criticism that, that can be gained through online ratings. But yeah, like you said, people don't like confrontation face to face. They get their courage behind the safety of their, their <laughs> computer screens and, That's a fact. and phones. But it really is unfortunate that, more people just can't be like, you know, it was an okay experience, but this was a little dry or, you know, our, our server wasn't attentive enough or this or that. And 
I've done it too, where I'm just like, you know, this isn't worth, I don't want to look like that guy. If I, I don't want to look like I'm complaining, even though they might be legitimate quality concerns that right. if, if I own the restaurant, I would want to know about, or if I was the manager or anything like that, you know, these are things I would like to know about. Mm-hmm. I think a person can go about providing that type of criticism without looking like a jerk. No, it's true. There's, there's certain things you can do. And my dad would always say, there's some things we can do without adding cost. And just being nice and, and cordial and helpful, you know, being hospitable type attitude costs you nothing, mm. but yet can mean the difference in people being happy or walking out unhappy. Very so, true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, just a positive attitude can, can fix a bad meal. Right. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. Well, I think we've talked a lot about restaurants and about Michelin stars, and uh, I think it's time we we're at that point in the day where we should bring on our guest. Let's do it. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. We, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to meet with us and joining us today. Sure. You know, we were, we were talking earlier in the show about some of the things you've been up to and, and been doing, and it's just, you've been, you are a busy person. You've been doing so much. We talked about uh, the first part, the restaurants, the, the food spots, the guest spots, your own show. And we haven't even talked about a lot of the things yet. So in COVID now, have you uh, have you slowed down a little bit and and taken a breather? Are you still going full force ahead? Or you know, when COVID first or quarantine first happened, I started doing a quarantine cooking class with survival tips, and I was doing it like three days a week. And so every other day I was either prepping for it or I was doing it and it was really fun. But I looked around me and everyone else like got to have the day off. <laughs> and I, did, <laughs> I was like, wait a second, what am I doing? So I, I made it twice a week instead of three times. And now I'm actually down to once a week because I'm starting to have like, I'm starting to envy the people around me who are just stuck doing nothing. And I'm like, wait, that kind of looks kind of good. So, but I, but I have been really busy. Yeah. I've kept myself busy. Do you enjoy the teaching side of it? Are you? I do. You know, if you had asked me 30 years ago, do you want to teach? I would have, you know, stuck my nose up in the air and I said, are you kidding? You know, teaching, <laughs> you know, there's all these things about, you know, teaching is for people who can't do it, but I spent, you know, 20, 30 years in the restaurant business, you know, on the line, in the action. I started out with a size six shoe. I'm a size nine now. So, uh, you know, when I started to teach, I, you know, wasn't on my feet as much and my life was a little more predictable. Not only that, but when I got my TV show on Food Network, that was the first time I ever didn't work past six o'clock. Because when you're in in television, they're union. Union, union, yep. And nobody, you know, you don't want to go into time and a half because it's too expensive. So everything like stays on track. You, you're supposed to be done at six. You are done at six. Yep. On uh, lunch, you break for lunch. And yes. if, you, if you touch one thing, yeah, I did some, um, I worked with a lot of union people in, in New York and like I tried to move some gear um, during lunch. Yeah. And, I got I got chewed a new one. Yeah, you can't. I, I wasn't union or anything, but they jumped they jumped all over me. I'm like, all right, all right. I'm, yeah, no, I'll you're taking you're taking their job. Like I couldn't even put my own mic on. I had to like stand there, spread eagle with my arms out, like I'm being frisked. And mm-hmm. now now if I ever go to do an event and I'm going to be mic'd, I like naturally go into that position of like <laughs> arms out, legs apart, because I I wore a mic on my ankle. 
and it, the wire went up my pants, like up the back of my clothes and to the front so that I wouldn't have like a bulge of the, of the battery yeah. pack. Oh, wow. So yeah, so I do this like spread eagle leg thing even when I go to get mic'd and, <laughs> and sound guys are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't touch the equipment, dude. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I thought you were trained. It's so funny. Yeah, it's so, so funny. So that was on um, that was on Sweet Dreams, right? Yeah, at Food and, Network. And that was that was like the first really big show on desserts, right? That was it was, a, it was he, first ever all dessert all pastry show. They had never um, done one before. They did. They felt like it might be a huge risk, and no one would want to watch, which is so cute now because you know kids watch <laughs> yeah. cake decorating YouTube videos just to you know pass the time, and people are obsessed with it now with decorating. Um, wow. But yeah, it was a big risk for them. You know, they had a lot of grilled chicken from Bobby, and I think basically it was like, "We need dessert. Call Gail Gand. <laughs> we gotta get some chocolate in here." Like they were just so sick of you know grilled vegetables and pasta, and yeah. So that was in 2000, and the show ran on Food Network till 2008, and then flipped wow. over to Cooking Channel, which is where they put all the teaching shows for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it went off the air. But 10-year run, which is, you know, longer than some marriages, right? I mean, that's a huge success. Yeah, it was a great run. First one out there doing it. And, and yeah. how did that how did that come about? I mean, you just said they called you and said, we need some dessert items. and uh, Yeah, was it was it, funny huh? because it's not how you'd get a show now. You know, now you have to have a certain number of followers and send in videos and stuff. Um, at the time, I had been on Sarah Moulton's show a few times, a bunch of times, actually. And Sarah and I worked well together because she's even shorter than I am. I'm short. So her kitchen fit me. It's the first time, like, my elbows weren't up in the air chopping at a countertop. <laughs> so when they thought about, like, okay, we really want to have a dessert show. Who can we call? And, you know, the obvious probably would have been, like, Jacques Therese, because um, he had been on as well. But he's got a really strong accent. Uh, Francois mm. Payard as well. Like they're both in New York. They wouldn't have had the expense of flying anyone in, but they were looking for someone who didn't have a, you know, a maybe hard to understand accent. The criteria was they needed someone um, who could teach, someone who was comfortable on camera, and someone who could actually cook. And apparently, uh-huh. you don't find that those matters, huh? three things in one person usually. <laughs> yeah, like you'll get someone who's great Triple on camera, <laughs> but they can't actually cook. So I apparently fit the criteria, and I actually I was I called them to ask if I could book myself on Sarah's show. So whenever I was in New York, I would call and say, "Hey, I'm going to be in New York. You know, can I be on Sarah's show?" And they would always say yes. So I actually mm-hmm. called. I wasn't even going to be in New York. I just called and said I was going to. And I thought they'll say yes, and then I'll buy the ticket. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in New York. And they're like, oh, well, uh, we don't really have anything for you. I'm like, really? Because I'm going to be there. And I called you first to, like, let you book my time first. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't really need you for Sarah's show. And they kind of did that a few times. And then there was this pregnant pause. And then Mm. they said, because we want to offer you your own show. Uh, uh, <laughs> like they were setting me up uh-huh. and I was you know I wanted to scream I wanted to scream oh my god but I wanted to appear professional so yeah. apparently I'm known as this like real tough cookie at Food Network because apparently what I said was I'll have to get back to you on that like I blew uh-huh. them off 
But do you it was, remember saying it like I do, that? Or? I do. Yeah. I was like, I want But what it was, I was trying to get off the phone so I could kind of like run around the dining room and scream. <laughs> Celebrate, yeah. Yeah, and also sort of like, you know, figure out like what are the right questions to ask? What are you supposed to say? What's a girl supposed to say when you get offered a TV show? Right, so I, how do you even know so that, right? I didn't, I didn't. So I had to consult with others. So I called him back the next day and like, okay, about that about that show. <laughs> so that's how it happened. It was just out of nowhere, seriously. I think True had been open like six months. Uh, no, maybe a year, a year. Oh, wow. That was during that time. Wow. Yeah. That must, how, how much time did it take to film an episode? I mean, days out there? And, and Well, it was funny. When I asked them that question, um, generally, like it would take, it, it takes people, um, you can usually do two to five shows in a day. Mm-hmm. And the oh, shows wow. are, you know, they're, it's a 22 minute show you know, commercials turns it into a half hour, but it, mm-hmm. it generally takes about an hour and a half to two and a half hours to film a show. But what they would say is they'd be like, well, Mario does five a day. Like they kind of <laughs> like shame you with that. Uh. So that was like the goal, like was to come in, you know, full on and knock out five a day, which I, I did not, I usually could do two the first day and like three the second day, and then I would do four and five after that. And you would film for two weeks. So I'd be there 10 days filming. The goal was to do 30 shows in two weeks. And you had the weekend off, but I stayed in New York. My Gio was little then. Gio was like four and five and six and seven. So he'd come to New York on the weekends Uh, to hang out with me and then go back home. And I was just like living in a hotel and going out to dinner every night. Yeah, it was fun. experience. Oh, it was, it was just great. It was the, you know, a great era of food network and, you know, the, the pay, (laughs) like (laughs) it paid for my son's college. When Gio went off to college, I made him a t-shirt that says food network paid for my college because it did. Like I just stuck up, you know, the money in a 529 and it was, it was just a great experience. And then all the people that I was able to connect with who still follow me, you know, I go to wherever, San Diego Food and Wine Festival, Palm Desert Food and Wine, Hawaii Food and Wine. And there's like 200 people at my demo. And there's there's people there who say they watched me as a kid and I'm why they're a pastry chef. Wow. And then I say, give me your phone so I can call your parents to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> why do we always do that? People in the industry, we, we tell others, don't do this. Don't, don't do, do what do we're it. doing. <laughs> yeah, get out while you still can. Right. But, but if you're going to be in it, wear comfortable shoes. You know? Yes. Oh, man. So important. Good set of yeah. orthotics, right? Yes. Your feet. So, you know, it was just a terrific experience um, being at Food Network and sort of, you know, becoming a bit of an icon when it comes to pastry. All right. Absolutely. And and worldwide. I mean, I apparently I'm I'm like Elvis in the Philippines. Really? Wow. Really? No, <laughs> How really. How did you learn that one? <laughs> I, yeah. Because I'll, I'll go to the National Restaurant Association show, which is usually in Chicago. It's a huge convention in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But there's people from all over the world there. And sometimes I'll see like these little clusters of very tiny Asian women and they're like covering their faces and they're sort of shaking and crying. And so I go over to them. I'm like, you know, are you okay? And they're like, Oh my God, we watch you on TV. And they just like, they, they're, they lose their S you know, they're losing it because they're seeing me and they're seeing me in person. And they tell me that like, you're huge in our country. I'm like, but I'm only five feet. They're like, no, no, we mean you're like really popular. (laughs) So, 
That's got to be an interesting feeling to find out that you're big in a country. You know, I mean, can't wait to go here, there. But, but, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, I, I want to go, go there. I want to go. I want to go. Yeah, I mean, they have a real sweet tooth in the Philippines. Desserts are everything, and mm-hmm. sh- sugar. You know, they do elaborate like um, pulled sugar flowers, and yeah. So it's just it's less about me and more about the field. Like they have a real appreciation, I think, for pastry there. So maybe I'll retire there. And be treated like, like a, a queen. queen, yeah, yeah, or queen, right? Absolutely. So what did your popularity do for your restaurant? It put what we call butts in seats. So it, yeah. you know, we were three months out reservation wise, and I don't think it was just the show. It was a combination of, you know, really great reviews and mm-hmm. um, beard awards, you know, and the show. But we actually we did start uh, a thing where you could come in for just dessert if you wanted. And mm. it was three courses of dessert. Uh, so it wasn't the, you know, four-hour dining experience. It was like an hour and a half, and it was less money. So it kind of allowed young, you know, people new to fine dining to sort of try it out without the hundreds of dollars of commitment and time commitment. Um, so that became a thing at True where you could come just for dessert. So we were talking a little bit on the front half of the show about the, the Michelin star and the system there of the awards and so forth. And I read something that uh, your restaurant or you, you and um, your husband at the time, I think the first American chefs to receive the red M, is that right? Or yeah. what's the deal on that? So there's just before um, your first star in Europe, there's something called the red M. So it might be a little bit like Bib Gourmand is here, which is that sort of precursor to your first star. Um, but this was back in the 90s. Rick Tremonto, who was my husband at the time and is a great chef, and I lived in England. And we were cooking um, at a country house hotel in England. We lived there for three years. And while we were at Stapleford Park Hotel cooking, we got a Michelin Red M. And it was, I had never heard of it actually till we got it, but um, apparently we were the first Americans to ever receive it. And this is before Michelin was in America. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. So this is like, I think it was 91. Yeah. Michelin didn't come to the States till I'm not even sure when. Oh, okay. Because we were, we were looking at that and we were wondering, the United States only has, I think, 14 three-star and of course, France is 29 or 30 or something in Japan. And so it's, it's pretty new in the U.S. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't remember when it started in, but, um, I remember, you know, sort of having to learn the criteria, like they look at your flowers and they look at your bathroom and your coat check and they come in three times. Um, They try to order some of the same stuff to check consistency in your restaurant. And one of the interesting things, you guys heard of the restaurant Next in Chicago? It was one of Grant Ashat's restaurants that the menu changed every three months. Oh, that'd be difficult. eh? And, And the interior changed every three months. And you can't get it like it's sold out. You can't get it like even I can't get in. And I know Grant, but the (laughs) so the Michelin guide wouldn't review them because they couldn't get three reservations in a row in the same three month menu. So like there's certain restaurants they just can't even review because they need to see consistency, you know, of cooking style. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting. They even sometimes will ask to see your wine room or, you know, see your wine cellar. I thought this Michelin was different in the sense that they were anonymous. Is that true? Like you don't know yeah. that they're there? No, we, oh, don't, okay. we don't know they're there. Um, okay. I'm trying to think if we ever found out later who, no, no, we didn't. We don't, like, I don't well, know who have, my guy is. 
They kind of pride okay. themselves on that, is what it said in the, yeah. in the article. So, would that be a tip off though if they're asking to see your wine cellar? You no, know, well, they actually, bring a, notebook, you know? a lot of people <laughs> is that a regular thing? Yeah, a lot of people do, yeah, and they ask to see really? the kitchen. Um, what they're looking for, we found out later, like they want to see if your sommelier like wears a suit and mm. like does he have a a knot in his tie or is it a clip on like it's the you know craziest things that they're looking wow. at and our our sommelier scott tyree um he always put a lab coat like over his suit so he wouldn't get his suit dirty if he was in the wine room because there's dust mm-hmm. in there you know some of the bottles are dusty so they take that kind of stuff into account even <laughs> huh. wow you never would have thought they'd go that far the, yeah. the minutiae wow yeah Clip on or, or not tie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Throw out those clip ons, boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, did they judge the knot? Was it a double Windsor? Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you, we've talked about your uh, effect on, on people. So, going through your career and the people that you've met, we've read here some of the people that you've, you've done shows with or you've done appearances with. Who out of your career that when you were coming up would you say made a big influence on you? Well, probably the biggest and er earliest as well would be Julia Child. So I had the opportunity to cook with Julia in 95, I think it was. Um, She was writing a book called Baking with Julia. And most people don't know this, but I found it kind of funny. She doesn't really bake. And so (laughs) she called 27 different pastry chefs to help her write the book. And we each had a different chapter or a different focus in the book. Mine was the phyllo chapter or the phyllo dishes. And then if you got your recipes in on time, you got to go to her house in Cambridge and film the PBS television series with her. So I'm in two episodes so cool. of that. And it's fun. I mean, go, you can, you can go watch them still. Just go to the PBS website and, you know, just put in the search bar, Julia Child, Gail Gand. And these very sweet, you know, early, mid-90s TV shows will pop up. I'm very blonde, you know, like mm-hmm. big blonde hair. And I'm, I'm actually kind of quiet because it's before I'm media trained. So I'm like a little shy. And it's before Food Network got a hold of my eyebrows. So I have like these bushy Muriel Hemingway eyebrows. <laughs> and Julia, you know, I'm, I'm like five feet tall. And Julia is six feet. But. She was about 84 at the time. So she had a little scoliosis. So she was like a little hunched over, thank God. <laughs> so she's like 5'10 instead of, you know, six yeah, feet. She had that Don't have to pull the shot look. out too much. <laughs> yeah, but it, they're darling. We're sort of like granddaughter, grandmother vibe going on. And they're very sweet. And, you know, that just train, like changed the whole trajectory of my career. It really did. And, and I actually, I own Julia's Madeline pans. So I have a piece of her with oh. me a lot of the time. I, I travel with them. Like I went to Delaware last week to visit family and I brought the Madeline pans and we all made Madeline. Oh. So oh. they get used. That's nice. They get good use. That's a nice, nice thing to have and good memory there, right? Yeah. Very cool. Absolutely. So what triggered you or what made you want to do pastry? Was it, I, I think we read somewhere that, um, you were one of the, the people that in, in so many cases we hear of people getting a job in food service somewhere. And then one night, you know, you're called upon to come help out. And that's kind of the start of a career. But that was hot side or in the on the line, right? So where did pastry come in for you? How did that become a 
area of your interest? Right. Well, you know, in my early life, I was a musician. My dad was a jazz trumpet player and a folk singer, and I played with him as a kid. So I was a performer on stage, um, like played at Disneyland as a kid and never went on any rides. But, you know, I played it like <laughs> played at Expo, Expo 67 in Montreal, you know, barely went to any of the exhibits, but I had to work every day. But after that, I went to art school. I was a silver and goldsmithing major and started waitressing in a restaurant because I'm a starving art student and my dad couldn't right. afford, you know, the meal plan for me. And one and I loved waitressing. I just lo- like I loved service, you know, serving people and describing the food and kind of help restore people back to their original good self, which, you know, the word restaurant comes from a French verb that means to restore. So I took it like really seriously, like this is what we are here doing. We are helping restore people back to their best self. But one night a line cook didn't show up and I got thrown on the line and was terrified. And, you know, about 10 seconds into it, I, I felt this odd sense of calm come over me like I'd found my home. And it wow. it was like a calling. I get choked up when I talk about it still. It just, it was like nothing else I'd ever, it's, I guess that's like what falling in love maybe is, you know, like getting struck by the arrow of Cupid, but it was for the restaurant business. And I ran home and I told my dad, like, dad, I know what I want to do. And he's like, really? Cause I just paid for college. <laughs> so it better be college, you know, better be what you're studying in college. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a chef. And he's like, oh, gay. You know, it's not uh, a very reliable business. Yeah. I'm like, you know, Dad, you're a folk singer. And he goes, well, <laughs> and a jazz trumpet player. And I'm like, that's what makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. <laughs> so I originally just wanted to be in that world. And I didn't even care what part of it. I was a dishwasher. I was a coat check girl. I just loved it all. But wow. it really wasn't me. It was um, one of my chefs I worked for in Rochester, New York. Um, I had worked at two restaurants during college with him. And then I dropped out to finish school. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? You drop drop out of school to finish. So (laughs) I stopped working in restaurants for like a year to kind of work on my silversmithing career. And I was making a living as an artist, which like is unheard of. But he, his name was Greg Broman. And he came back to me and said, you know, you miss the restaurant business, don't you? And it's like, you know, it's like a drug addict. I'm like, no, you know, I don't miss it. He's like, you do too. Admit it. You know, you do. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of, I'm kind of lonely in my studio. And he's like, listen, can you just come back and do pastries for me? I hate my pastry chef. I want to fire him, but I just need someone to cover for like six months. And I said, Yeah, but that's where they always stick girls. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be typecast so young. You know, he goes, I just need you to do it for six months and then I'll let you out. I'll let you on the line wherever you want to go. Just do me this favor. So I said, yes. So I went and I was his pastry chef for six months. And then he came to me after six months and said, okay, you know, do you want a spot on the line? I'm, I'm, you know, I can start looking for some, I'm like, well, give me six more months. Just get, <laughs> not quite done here. Let me just, yeah. and that went on for three years and I just mm. never wanted to leave. You know, I just loved the thing about pastry is it's chemistry, it's physics. It's this language that's very reliable. Like not that there isn't improv in the pastry kitchen. There can be later, but it's this very, like, I find it really comforting because it's the same 
every time. You know, mm. I put sugar in egg whites and whip them a lot and they turn into meringue and it looks the same each time. And I, there's something about it, you know, they're, they're saying now even that baking helps promote mental health. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why people are doing it so much during COVID. But I think early oh. on, I discovered that this sort of, you get a sense of that you're in control because things come out the same each time. Um, you know, it kind of boosts your self-confidence and your self-esteem. It connects you with people in a way that's, I mean, it's nice to cook for people, but to be the person that makes their wedding cake, you know, or the mm-hmm. the item that's the celebratory, like I'm in everybody's life to help celebrate stuff. And they, they come up to me and say like, oh, you you know, you made the... The dessert that night, I got engaged to my wife. And, you know, I'm like there at these really important moments in people's lives. And I, I, I'm I, a part of it. I mean, I don't ask to be. But in their muscle memory, I'm there. Mm-hmm. And I get to help them, like, stop time and mark a moment. And it's just such a privileged place to be. It's it's a it's a, such a wonderful thing to do, and you know it's art, it's craft, it's entertainment, it's dance, it's science, and then there's the whole people part of like managing others and inspiring others. You know, because I have assistants that work for me, mm, and right. Well, it's a strange juxtaposition of wanting to keep something and then eat it as well. You know, you well like with wedding cakes and stuff, you know, it was so good, but we want to save some so of it. So you save the you top know? tier. Well, you know, <laughs> because I was an artist, a, a visual artist, a, you know, three-dimensional art, right. if you don't sell your piece, you have to store it. So like I have a house full of paintings. I've sold a lot of paintings, but not as many as I've painted. Uh, and ceramics is the worst because that stuff's like 3D and takes up a lot of space. At least jewelry was small. Mm-hmm. But as an artist, if you don't find a home for your stuff, it's still there. Your worst it, it, piece, your best it's, piece. It's like being surrounded by your failures yes. almost, you know. It's like, <laughs> but with I want dis- my children to leave the house. Right. But with food, it's gone. In two to three yeah. days, whether it was good or bad, it's gone. And if it was bad, you can say it was good and no one's going to know. You know, it'd be like, oh, yeah, that was a great Pavlova. But actually, it like you overcooked it. Who's going to know? <laughs> so I love the sort of ephemera, if that's the right way to say it, ephemeral aspect of cooking because the evidence is gone. <laughs> you know, yeah. it gets, interesting way to look at it. It, right? gets, it gets eaten. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I also appreciate the patience involved in baking. If you're not patient, you know, that's one of the primary ingredients. I find it therapeutic and it allows me to process other things, maybe. There's um, actually also the repetition. You know, a lot of the mm. movement is repetitious, which that kind of rhythm can be relaxing and, you know, stress relieving as well. Um, so, yeah, it has a lot of great, it actually can cause your brain to release endorphins. So you can sort of get this sense of, you know, elation when you're making something and it turns out to be successful and then, you know, feed it to someone. I I had to make my, or got to make my husband's birthday cake yesterday. So, you know, I'm serving him. I'm helping him celebrate his birthday and he always has the right look on his face when he takes that first bite. And it's, you know, it's very satisfying. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and you get paid. Like, <laughs> hey, 
There's, that's you know, right. I'm not just doing it. I get like there's a check in the mail too, which that's that's always fun. I wonder if anybody's done any studies, you know, hooked you up all the wires and everything and mapped the brain to see what's what's happening actually as you're going through the baking process and then you're serving it and you're seeing people enjoy. I, I know, believe be actually, yeah, I believe they have that because they know that it, like baking improves concentration. There's even, um, there's a new thing. It's called uh, culinary arts therapy. So it's a form oh. of therapy where you cook or bake with somebody um, as a stress relief thing, it's so like it's a it's a you know an area of therapy you can study and get a degree in. There's a woman named Julie Ohana um, that works as an art therapist, and it's something called behavioral activation. So they'll they'll um, do some kind of activity like make chocolate chip cookies and try to associate that with something you do that maybe scares you and it takes away the fear because you get this reward at the end of the chocolate chip cookies. Hmm. So they use it as a way to, you know, kind of rewire your brain. Hot side cooking rewired my brain. I, (laughs) I look at both, I look at both of you and I think it makes sense. You're both artistic and you like the baking stuff. Your world intimidates me. I well, I cannot do baking. It is not my world. I'm, I'm more on the, the hot side, put behind the line and, little of uh, this, that, little of that. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And and you said it early on that you're in the baking, it, it's very precise. And there's mm-hmm. a certain percentage that has to go or it doesn't turn out. And if it does, if you do it right, it turns out the same every time. Where our, on the other side, we can play a little bit, taste a little bit. And uh, yeah, it I doesn't th- always have to be a perfect recipe. Um, pre- precision is really important in baking. but I, I And OCD helps too. So if a <laughs> little bit of OCD... Um, that I think most pastry chefs do, you know, just putting all their tools lined up and, you know, measuring everything out ahead of time. You need to be the kind of person that that feels good to, um, I think, to be a exceptional baker. So does your are you a cleaner upper as you go or are you a, at the end of the day cleaner? A uh, bit of both depends on what I'm doing. Like when I'm in a class, obviously I'm not cleaning as I go. I'm just like piling as I go. And that's sort of a TV thing, you know, where you clear. So I clear away. So visually there's not Mm -hmm. clutter, but then yeah, at the end there's the big cleanup. But when I'm working at home, yeah, no, I don't clean as I go. It's like a mound of dishes. And when, (laughs) when my husband and I first got together, he, he's so sweet. He said, you know, we probably should talk about like, who's going to do the cooking and who's going to do the dishes. (laughs) Like, like, why would you marry me if you wanted to do the cooking? Like, I, I can't do much, but I can do that. So, but like, how sweet, because, you know, he's thinking, well, she's at work all day cooking. Maybe she doesn't want to make dinner when she gets home. But yeah, she wants to do dishes. Right. Yeah, no. So I was like, you know, and, and he's a really bad cook. So <laughs> I thought, you know, he, he's got like two dishes he can do. He's got this weird farfalle dish with like a, it's like some fish paste. He's Sicilian. So it's... It's, and it's got like raisins in it and pine nuts or something and this oh, uh, Ed fennel, okay. like ground mm. fennel. I don't know. Anyway. A lot going on there. Um, so I said, you know, I think it probably makes the most sense if I do the cooking and you do the dishes. And you could see he was like, yes. You know, like secretly that was his evil plan all along. <laughs> Two weeks into this, after dinner, he comes to me and goes, you know, Gay, I don't mean to be ungrateful or anything, but... I just washed three colanders and we didn't even have pasta. 
Like, <laughs> like, what are you doing in the kitchen? And I, I had no idea how many dishes I use. Because I have a brigade of people at work. Like, literally, I got like five mm. guys washing my KitchenAid bowls. You know, I got six KitchenAid bowls. I'm using one. There's always like four up there. I have no cognition of how many things I'm going <laughs> and how many tasting spoons. And yeah, right. so it's a big job. And he tries to keep up, but he cannot. <laughs> he cannot. So I dive in and kind of zero it out for him. Oh, that's funny. It's, you're right, though. If you don't do your own dishes, then uh, it doesn't matter how many bowls or pieces of whatever you use, right? Well, I think, too, he seems reluctant reluctant to wash, like, my sort of specialty equipment. Like, I always know, like, you know, the Cuisinart's never, like, he never washes that. Like, that always gets left for me to do. Well, so. So, in your... Uh, in your downtime from working and everything, do you do you watch cooking shows? Do you like to watch others on TV? Do you find enjoyment yeah. in doing that? Um, it's not that I don't find enjoyment. I just don't find the time to do it. People okay. used to ask me like, oh, do you watch so-and-so? And I'm like, I'm uh-huh. on TV. I don't watch TV. You know, I get like, <laughs> sassy about it. But um, I watch, you know, the news, which I probably shouldn't right now. They're saying that that's a bad idea. But oh. no, I uh, and I'm watching baseball because it's on. Because we've got some... For got a while some, yet, we hope. Hopefully for a little yeah, while Yeah, got here. some baseball. Mm. No, I don't watch a lot of cooking shows. Um, one of the things I did during COVID, during quarantine, because I was home and all my events got canceled, you know, food and wine festivals were canceled and teaching at King Arthur Flowers canceled. Um, and I'm not usually home consistently, you know, day after day after day after day after day after day after day. <laughs> Yes. But something I always wanted to do, but I never could do because I traveled so much, was have backyard chickens. Ah. So during quarantine, I got chickens. Did you hatch them or did you get them from chicks? I rented them. From... <laughs> that's a thing it's you can rent thing. chickens it's a no thing. way you rent the chickens the coop they bring you the feed the shavings like the little water container and food container and if you want at the end you can rent to buy so you can like buy them out at the end and just keep the whole thing or november 1st they come pick them up and you send everybody back to to camp <laughs> And you can do it again, you know, the next spring. I don't know if I can get the same chickens. Um, or you can keep them over the winter. They don't lay as many eggs in the winter. So some people are like, eh, I don't want to bother. Um, and I'm still deciding whether I'm going to return them in November or not. I've grown quite attached to two out of the four. You must have named them. Well, not only did I name them, when I wanted to get them, um, there's a thing in our family where you have to do like a PowerPoint presentation if you want to do something <laughs> serious. Like my daughter, really. my daughter Ruby wanted to go to school abroad. She wanted to go do a year abroad next year in France. So she did, you know, her PowerPoint presentation to convince us <laughs> why she should be able to do it. So I did my chicken PowerPoint presentation. It was like, you know, isn't it a perfect time for chickens? And so the deal was that there were different breeds, six different breeds we could choose from. And everyone would get to pick one chicken and they could name their own chicken. They could name that one. And the idea was you'd feel a little more connected to it then. So we each have our own chicken and each got to name one of the chickens. Yes. Oh, that's cool. What are your chickens names? Well, my husband's chicken originally was named I Told You So. Because he's the one that said, you know, raccoons are going to come and eat them. And I'm going to say, I told you so. And, you know, so he thought 
when I came in and said one of the chickens got eaten and he'd say which one and I'd say yours and he'd say I told you so <laughs> um, but having said that uh, we noticed that I told you so was blind in one eye Aww. and I felt bad yeah and I told my husband and so he changed his name to Sammy like Sammy mm. Davis Jr. because yeah. Sammy's got a gla- yeah, glass Sammy. eye so that's Sammy so Sammy's actually turned out to be my favorite Sammy's just like really social and follows me around like a little dog. They're, <laughs> if I come outside, they are, they're... yeah, they're so funny. She, they come flying across, not literally flying, but like running on their short legs across the yard. As, I'm food to them. I think that's what it is because I'm always bringing like watermelon or bananas or baguettes or whatever, you know, for them. So the eggs, you're you're getting the eggs. Are you? Yeah. Is there a difference in the in the? Oh no, yeah. We're talking about how precise mm. pastry is, oh, right? Oh yeah. Well, it was funny. I was teaching a class tonight, and someone asked if the eggs I was using were from my chickens, and they they're not, because the sizes vary. And you know, when you're writing cookbooks and formulating recipes, the industry standard right now is a large egg. If it says one egg, it means one large egg. And for instance, um, Mrs. Weasley's eggs are large. But, Plu- but Pluto's are not. So wow. I pretty much just use their eggs for either if it's a recipe where you're measuring out a volume of egg whites, I can use them. Or, but mostly I use them for like fried eggs and scrambled eggs and, you know, stuff like that versus a mousse. And, and they're the best eggs. They're the they? best. Oh, so good. oh, my God. The color and the flavor yes. of the yolks. And I don't know, are, are any of you guys doing sourdough? You know, everyone got into sourdough during COVID. It's so big. Nope. Yeah. Did you do any? So uh, uh, A little bit. The, when you first start, King Arthur has some great recipes. And one of them is this recipe for sourdough crumpets. And it's a 10-minute recipe. It's super easy. And they're so delicious. And so I make these crumpets and I plop one of the fried eggs on it from Sammy. And you're just in heaven. Mm, you really yes. are. So have you used any other kind of eggs? My wife, her mother has a hobby farm with, you know, ducks. And, yeah, duck and eggs. And duck eggs are awesome. Turkey eggs are surprisingly very good, too. Oh, I haven't had those. I've had du- I, duck eggs. It, it was a, a completely different texture, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I just, I wonder if you actually have cooked with anything other than chicken eggs. Just duck eggs. I've done like a poached duck egg, you know, for a frise salad. Uh-huh. Um and I, no baking, though, or anything? No. I'm trying to think. I brought them to class one time, and I was selling them. I sell them to chefs, actually, because I have a friend yeah. who raises them. Um, and I, I sell ramps in the spring. My son and I have a business foraging ramps locally where we live. And then on top of that, I sell, like, a neighbor's honey and my friend's duck eggs and whatever else i have your root beer i do yes it's national yeah Yeah. i I read that i thought i've got to get some of this root beer but i don't know where to go for it right now in wisconsin anywhere oh i'm sure there's somewhere in wisconsin but i'd have to like call my cisco is my distributor so anywhere well then we can order it yeah you can just order a case of it it's cinnamon ginger vanilla flavored it's called Mm -hmm. gail's root beer i've been making it since my trio days so since 93 maybe 94 so over 20 years, I, what it was, was, you know, we live, I mentioned we lived in England for three years. They don't have root beer there. That sassafras flavor that was used for medicinal purposes during the war, like for cough syrup. So okay. there's no market for root beer in Europe. It's like trying to sell Listerine soda pop. 
You know, it's just, it's like an awful <laughs> medical flavor to them. So, really? wow. so for three years, I couldn't get any. And I'm like a Midwest girl. Like I need my A&W or whatever. I'll take anything, right. dog and suds, whatever. So when I got back, I thought, you know what? That's never happening to me again. I'm going to learn how to make <laughs> this stuff. So I started making it a trio. And like I was serving like little mini root beer floats with, you know, Chinese five spice ice cream and, you know, oh. And of course, you know, when something's that small, you can charge twice as much for it, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what was that process like about, I mean, how do you, how do you, where do you even start right? to figure out how to, how to make root beer, you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure there's like recipes out there, but I mean. I, this is sort of like before the internet, to be honest. So I called yeah. one of those beer places, like a, you know, that helps you brew beer. I, mm-hmm. I called them first and they're like, oh, yeah, here's what you want to do. Like, you want to use um, champagne yeast to get your effervescence. So I, that's what I started with. And the batches that I made were simply vile. They were just like these <laughs> weird, scummy, I don't know if you've read like Roman food a thousand years ago was like these fermented things that they then, you know, knocked the bubbles out. And it was like, uh, in a, just it was awful just awful so then i like started over and what happened was my walk-in repair guy ted like the guy who would come fix our walk-ins when they break down he also fixed the walk-ins for a third generation soda pop maker on the south side of chicago and he heard me saying, I'm trying to figure out how to make root beer. And he's like, you know, I fixed the coolers for the Filberts family. They've been making root beer for a hundred years. You, you know, you want, can I have, you know, you want to call him? You want his number? So I had to go to a soda pop guy, um, not a fermentation guy. And it's basically mm-hmm. making like a flavored syrup and then putting CO2 into it to get the bubbles. So that's what I started doing. And I was doing these all these infusions with like star anise and honey and maple and cinnamon and blah, you know, just doing different spices and sort of sweeteners. And I ended my the one that I still do to this day, it's cinnamon, ginger and vanilla. And I use Nielsen Massey vanilla, which is like, you know, world class best vanilla there is out there. And cinnamon Nielsen stick Massey. and Nielsen Massey. They're also third generation vanilla plantation guys yeah they're and they're okay. they're here in chicago one. oh yeah they're um they're in waukegan illinois they do a cold pressed process uh and they also have a second plant in the netherlands to service europe but they're you know in my world they're the they're the shit <laughs> can, can oh, we say that all right <laughs> no, say that. Okay. yeah no okay i i sensed you want to say it earlier i did you know? yes <laughs> like, i did <laughs> i was like just just let it flow gail okay. we're, we're good here <laughs> okay there's there's different um, flavors of, of, I shouldn't say flavors, but one of my, it's like Madagascar versus some others. And I know Lockheed, I've worked with them before. Is this uh, Massey, is that specific? Do you like that for baking or for the root beer? That's so for the root beer. Nielsen Massey is a company and they do um, all different blends of vanillas along with um, single origin. So what you're talking about, like Madagascar is one particular place that it comes from so that's called single origin i actually wrote a book about it called chocolate and vanilla so the vanilla chapter or the vanilla side of the book is all about the different profiles that like tahitian vanilla has versus indonesian versus mexican versus madagascar madagascar is like we call that like the merlot of vanilla so it blends really well it's very sort of mellow and creamy 
um, versus Tahitian has these like cherry overtones and fruity mm -hmm. flavors. I actually went to Tahiti and took people on a cruise to visit vanilla plantations in Tahiti. So I got to like awesome. go to a vanilla plantation and even like pollinate the, it's an orchid, you know, it's, there's like 36,000 kinds of orchids and only one variety bears fruit that's edible. And it's, it's huh. this particular one that makes the vanilla um, bean. So it's a little flower and you have to pollinate it. Uh, and then it forms a bean. It takes about nine months for the bean to grow and then another nine months to age it properly. And in Tahiti, they wow. even massage their beans at night. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the it's Kobe like and the spa, real... <laughs> spa beans, yeah. And in Indonesia, they're so interesting. Their growing cycle or growing period is shorter than Tahiti. So they have to pick their beans before they're actually ripe. So they end up kind of like pushing them at the end by putting them over over smoldering fires to kind of keep them warm and keep the enzymes going. And so oh. Indonesian vanilla actually has like this smoky flavor to it. So, okay. so I use different ones for different, for depending on what I'm baking. Okay, right. Makes sense. Sorry you asked, aren't you? No, no. <laughs> no I'm, I, I knew there was different varieties of it or what I was trying yeah. to say is the some are the more fruity, some are yeah, the more... Yeah, definitely. You know, and those are the four that's... major areas, but they're also like they grow in India. There's a couple like secondary markets that they don't grow enough to export it, but they, you know, keep it within their country usually. So is there is there a market for vanilla snobs i mean you got wine snobs you got beer snobs what? coffee snobs yeah and I, I think there is and i i think i could see myself being a vanilla snob right? now because your life isn't complicated enough right yeah <laughs> yeah no but you know get, people get the book read up on vanilla and you'll be a vanilla snob well i usually do a couple <laughs> vanilla classes a year and sometimes i even teach them at like spice house you know kind of stores like in palm desert there's a What's it called? It's called Savory Spice. It's a spice shop. And I'll go there and do a vanilla class or cinnamon class. And people, you know, when they kind of get, you know, they've got a handle on sort of the standard stuff. This is like the next level up for them. Chocolate, too, you know, to start getting into percentages of cacao. And mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. if you need more complexity in your life, we could do that one, too. Do that one next. Yeah, I, I'm always down. Yay. Make things a little bit <laughs> more, more challenging for myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your show that um, you're doing in your home mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. From the restaurant where you have, of course, all the equipment that's commercial grade. You've got all the the brigade doing the dishes. You've got all the things <laughs> that you're that you're used to in in, in the restaurant environment. Now you're in, in the home. So what are the things that you need to do differently when you're in your home environment versus being in the restaurant? Is there little tips, tricks that you might have for people to think about how in their homes and things that you do that make yeah, well, success? One thing is um, I would recommend getting a thermometer to hang in your oven because home ovens tend to not be accurate. Uh, restaurant right. ovens aren't accurate either, but we have them calibrated often. Um, whereas the home one, a lot of people, you know, including me, don't want to spring for the cost of having your oven calibrated. So, and you can just go to the grocery store and spend, you know, $8 on a little thermometer that you hang in your oven. So I would I would do that just to make sure things are, you know, as they should be. I'm trying to think of what other differences. My equipment in my home kitchen is pretty kick-ass. Um, when I 
after I saved money for college, the next thing I did was redo my kitchen in my home and Viking gave me all the equipment for it. And actually it was, nice. there was a show, HGTV filmed it, you know, did like filmed a kitchen re, you know, do over and the designer and all that stuff. So Viking donated the equipment. So I have really good stuff. It's still domestic awesome. level, but it's, you know, higher BTUs than what most people have at home. Um, so that part, and that's important, especially on the stovetop, right? When you've got a burner that's so, underpowered and you're trying uh, to get something up to heat, uh, right? Yeah, that's just <laughs> like painful, right? <laughs> yeah. It's... Rich and I have lamented about stovetops. Like my my glass top right now is just, it's going to be, the, it was here when we moved into the house and it's it works. So it's difficult to justify buying something, but it doesn't work as well as you want it to. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And when, when I... When I bought the house I have, it was just the like the handle was broken off the oven door. It was all electric. It was a carpeted kitchen. That that was like a (laughs) thing in the seventies apparently. The bathrooms were carpeted too. Oh Ah, shag. ah. No, it's like it's like tight, you know. Short stuff. Yeah, Yeah. but like Gio was learning to cook and he'd drop an egg on that and forget it. And I remember Jeremiah Tower came to my house to film Gio to film cooking with Gio. They were making crepes together and Gio dropped an egg on the floor. And I just like, I, the something's got to, I got to change this. <laughs> so when I got the TV money, you know, I, I put in a new kitchen. Um, what I mostly miss is just hair and makeup. You know, I don't have that. At home. That's, that's really <laughs> <Do> your... painful. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Lighting. No, really. Cause if uh... you're used to like good lighting, you know, I'm in my kitchen. There's a window at this side. I got a hot spot on the side mm-hmm. of my face. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm always like, I have to take all this stuff down because it throws shadows and I have to like put up boards. Tonight, I had to hang a blanket from my door, like the back of my glass door to my porch because all this light was coming in. And so s- some of it's just like studio control, not really kitchen control stuff, mm-hmm. but just, you know, I can't control light as well in my house, which is hard. Yeah. Um, but I love just being able to roll out of bed and go downstairs and it's kind of like a ritual now because my class is on Facebook live or at 10 in the morning. So I get up at eight and it's sort of this, like I write my script, I I have a script for it. You know, I have to print out my recipe. Um, and then I start, you know, setting everything up and I got my swap outs and I got my trays for the next recipe and, uh, I have to remember to turn the oven on. That's always helpful. So it's not that different. It's just, um, and it's really quiet in the house because nobody wakes up. No, <laughs> nobody's awake. I have kids that like sleep till three. So yeah. it's like I do this whole thing and they don't even know I did it. I put a post-it on their bathroom door that says mommy's filming in the kitchen. So they won't like run in the kitchen naked, but like they never, they're not <laughs> even up to see the post-it. Yeah. No, not a worry, right? No. Do you have your um, your favorite like a, a home chef has truly more residential quality pots, pans, baking sheets, and so forth. And you got the luxury of, of knowing restaurant equipment. We have a different supply chain we can buy through. We get good quality. Do you have good old school? Like, do you just like an aluminum sheet pan? Is that what you like cooking off of? Or do you have uh, another pan you like cooking with? Well, for sheet pans, I have pretty much the classic half sheet pans, you know, that we use in restaurants. But then I also mm-hmm. have my grandma's cookie sheets. So I have um, 
two of my grandma's cookie sheet pans. Um, heirloom product. Yeah. So it's a combination of like, I've got my French rolling pin. That's like the really heavy one. I got a Dilleron that I, you know, take everywhere. But I also have my great grandmother's rolling pin that she brought over from Hungary on the boat, uh-huh. you know, in 1906. She only brought three things. She brought her kids. She brought $8 and four cents. Cause that's all she had. And she brought a rolling pin like that. You know, no one should be surprised I'm a pastry chef. <laughs> you know, she didn't. It's in the, it's in the DNA. Right, right. I'm like predisposed. Wow. It's a, a genetic flaw that I'm in pastry. <laughs> so, and I have actually quite an extensive rolling pin collection. So if I, oh. sometimes I teach like a pie boot camp and I'll show all these, like I have this these glass rolling pins that you put ice in and water so that they're cold. Oh. I, you know, and I've ones with a lot well they're actually from like the 20s you know when all bakeware got art deco looking yeah (laughs) and like i have pans from that era where they have like little trap doors in the side you slide open that would help the cake cool faster you know it's the funniest thing what what equipment was out there um and then just rolling pins with like beautiful patterns in them you know for springerling or whatever uh so I have a do, real collection. Do you go out and seek these out or, or do you go antiquing specifically for them or do, do. people give them to you? They show both. up, they know you collect them. Yeah. yeah, both, both. And with my Facebook live show, now they know more about what I collect. So <laughs> I find stuff at my front door all the time um, uh. that people have left. I started collecting pie birds, which are those little ceramic uh, birds that you would stick in a pie and it helps vent the oh, pie. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I started collecting those and, you know, the words out. So I start getting <laughs> getting them <laughs> left at my door in bags. <laughs> Any things that um, you would tell someone, get rid of that right away, take it away, get rid of it uh, equipment wise or something that is a gimmicky kind of thing that doesn't work or anything like that? What I'm, yeah, what I'm thinking of, well, I, I can think of stuff like you, you need, like everyone needs a microplane. Which, you know, 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a microplane. And now there's five varieties. Um, So that's something that's definitely worth investing in for, you know, grating lemon peel, maybe one with larger holes for Parmesan cheese or for grating like frozen butter onto toast. And then it it melts right away. Oh, Mm -hmm. there's a trick. Right. You know, like I first I heard that I try to keep butter out on the counter. I'm one of those people Mm. that, you know, has half a stick out at all times. But if you forget, you know, even if it's cold, uh, it can be frozen or refrigerated. But, you know, take out a cold stick of butter and throw it through a grater. And those little, you know, curls of they just melt instantly. It's just made a lot of Sunday mornings a lot better around here. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Um, And some of it's ingredients, you know, like real maple syrup, please. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's and Mm -hmm. and real butter and and I'm I'm as cheap as they come. So it doesn't have to be like an expensive butter or an expensive brand or European style, which is a higher butter fat content than American butter, but just butter and not the m word you know not yeah, okay um and and like when you are buying chocolate or cocoa powder it's really worth spending you know buy buy gear deli or buy something nice don't buy you know nestle's that's the got h word yeah the h word yeah. um that's got a little bit of you know edible paraffin in it so but things oh, yeah. um things like sugar you know doesn't matter what brand you buy so go ahead and just you know get whatever cheapest 
And colanders, oh, at least three of them. At right? least, at least three. <laughs> Six KitchenAid bowls. If you actually have to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I mean, two KitchenAid bowls at least and two whisk attachments. I can't tell you how useful that is for a girl like me. Yeah, very interesting. That's all good things to think about for the home chef. You know, as a chef, one of the things I found later I was really happy about was saying yes to projects that maybe didn't have a lot of money up front, but later created passive income. Mm -hmm. And it's something, you know, when you've got the time to invest and maybe someone approaches you to do some recipes, but it's a startup company and they don't have a lot of money, so they'll pay you royalties instead. Like, go, like, go for it. I have a couple partnerships in a bunch of different companies and have passive income, you know, get checks in the mail because I did work. There was this guy, Ricky Hirsch, and he sent out 100 emails asking chefs if they wanted to help with his project. He wanted to start a jerky company, and he was looking for chefs to do recipes for beef and turkey jerky. And he wrote to every chef that had in Chicago that had a Michelin star or a beard award, and that was 100. So guess out of 100 chefs he emailed, how many emailed back? Ten. Three. Three. Ooh, three. Wow. Three out of 100 answered their emails. And wow. the three of us, it was me, it was um, Matt Troost, and Laurent Gras at the time. And we did recipes for this jerky company. It's called Think Jerky. And um, because of that, we have partnership in this company. It'll probably get sold someday to, you know, General Mills or something. But I was able to say yes at the time. Let me create some recipes for you. You can pay me later. And it was like I got a certain you know number of cents per bag that got sold. Starbucks took it on. We were in 18 mm. different states in Starbucks. You know, you just never know what's going to happen to these things. It's called Think Jerky is the brand. And we did a Kickstarter. I think it was the third highest grossing food Kickstarter that Kickstarter ever did. That we were raising money to like pay the farmers to buy to raise the turkeys up for the turkey jerky, so oh. we're on we're on United Airlines, um, we're in all you know health clubs and grocery stores and all this stuff. So like some fun little side projects like that are great to be a part of, even mm. if it means you know you take on a little risk of of what of giving your time. Just gonna say, yeah. keep busy. Keep yourself yeah. busy with yeah. projects you know, like I just, that, right? I just always feel like always say yes. You know, say yes and then figure it out later. Ah, great advice for people that um, you know enjoy the industry, enjoy doing these types of things. Take a little risk and see where it goes. Yeah, right? or help someone else Very with their cool. dream. You right. know, right? Be that mentor. Do you have anybody that you can think of that you've mentored along the way that is makes you particularly proud? Yes, yes, I do. Um, it's a, a woman named Jess Dawson, and she came to me when she was 14. She came to one of my demos and waited in line through all the autographs that night, and she was the very last person in line, and she said, you know, I just, she said, can I, can I ask you for some advice? I really want to be a pastry chef, but I don't have any experience, so I can't get hired, so I can't get any experience. To get hired, what do I do? And I said, you know what you want to do? Find yourself a pastry chef and ask her if she needs her dishes done. And she looked at me, mm. she said, well, do you need your dishes done? And I said, you know, I kind of do. <laughs> I said, you know what, <laughs> go home and email me because I wanted to see if she'd follow through. Send me an email and I'll send you the next three demos I'm doing and you pick one out and, and you, you come and assist me and we'll see how it goes. 
So she does that. I send her three dates. She says she wants to come to all three. She does. Her mom's with her. So now I'm having to like keep her busy and her mom. I'm like, why is your mom here? She goes, because she drives me. I'm like, oh, how old are you? <laughs> like, I didn't really get that she was 14. I thought, you know, she's just like a teenager. But from there, she actually ended up working at Spiagia um, and interning there for two years during high school. She's 24 now. She mm. has worked for America's Test Kitchen. She traveled on cruise ships for the last two years for America's Test Kitchen doing demos. Um, she's, she worked in Iceland for two different summers working at this like fabulous three-star fish restaurant there. So she's just really interesting young lady who is on an adventure that um, I can't wait to see like where it leads to. She's been doing online classes as well. She has a blog and a website called Jessica Hits the Road. So she writes a lot about where she traveled because on the two years of cruises, she just went all over the world. So she's she's going to be someone. So check, That's yeah. a name to remember. check her out, yeah. Jess Dawson. Yeah, That's cool. I'm checking out her website right what? now. And yeah, she's a she... photographer too. She does all her own food photography. So if you look at her site, those are her shots. Very nice. Yeah. What's interesting is early on, you can you can just tell from the way she had that little exchange with you about your dishes and showing up to all three. She's she's got that drive. She's got something in her that's she's she's gonna go places. It sounds right. that's a name to remember right there. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. And she's single. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I, was trying, I, was trying, I don't know who I can. How old? Yeah, I, yeah she's young. Yeah, no, I, just, I know any, I was trying to get I my, know anybody that age. I was trying to get my son Gio. They're very good friends, but they they're like brother and sister, so it didn't work out. <laughs> she calls me her pastry to, mama. How cool! Very very nice. Uh, she'll again, you know she'll sounds write like books. a great kid. Yeah. How did you know? Did you know Christina or did you do the Madison Chef series with us? Or how um, we... Yeah, I did. I was at the college um, doing a night there and uh, she was there for Volrath. Mm-hmm. And I remember using the induction burner and it was so good. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? This is great. So she's like, <laughs> it well, still blows my mind we'll send you some. <laughs> so. Yes, yeah, so I just met her that night. And I met a lot of nice people that oh. night, actually, at Madison oh, okay. College. That was a great, uh, great evening. Really enjoyed it. Well, and we were talking about uh, stoves and cooking. I was going to ask you if you used induction, if that was now, is that something you've incorporated into your travel kit or your demo kit? Um, I Or use it daily? Uh, I actually have incorporated it because they can, you know, you can kind of set them up anywhere and bring them anywhere. And um, so, yeah. I love them. I love induction. Uh, and It's a great way to cook. Yeah, and it's just you can, you know, do it on any countertop. It doesn't have to just be at a stove. So I like the flexibility of it. Well, we were talking about control, having that level of control over your temperature and being able to keep chocolate where you want it. Exactly, exactly. Mind-blowing. Yeah, and I love that, you know, if you want to have a little fryer going or, some, you know, a little oil going, it's easy to do that kind of on the line where it's convenient versus where the hood is necessarily or you know where the you know the gas line is that kind of thing mm-hmm. so i love the flexibility yeah that is that is a method of cooking when you get used to it it's hard to give it up because it's just so handy and it's it does so many good things kind of spoils you yes it does yeah well unfortunately i do think it is time that uh we end the show here and gail again thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to talk to you a really good time and um Gosh, Almighty! It, it, if we talk another three hours, it'd be, it'd be <laughs> just as interesting. I'm sure you have a lot going on. You've done so much, and 
it just really has been a pleasure. So thank you again for joining us. Of today. course. Appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. And any last thoughts to any of our listeners? Um, just get in the kitchen. You know, it's a good place yeah. to be. It connects you with people in a way nothing else does. Um, it's good for yourself and it's, you know, good for others. So join me in the kitchen. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, to everyone listening, again, I hope you enjoyed the show today. And also, Gail, I, I'm sorry, I forgot. We always like to get a quote from uh, your career or someone that's influenced you in your life. Do you have anything for us here? My dad had said to me, pick for love, not for money, career-wise. Mm-hmm. Do something you love. Because my dad, he was a salesman, and when he was 40, he quit being a salesman and became a full-time musician. So I watched my dad. You know, I was 10 years old. I watched my dad, like, throw out all his suits and get jeans and cowboy boots and collect American folk songs. Like, how is that? How do you even make money doing that? I don't know still. But I watched him choose for love, not money, and he never tired of it. And so when it was, you know, when I didn't want to do what I had gone to college for, I I wanted to cook, I thought of my dad and just thought of, you know, I'm going to choose for love, not for money. The money will come. Great advice. Justin, any closing thoughts? Of course. Yes, I would just like to remind everybody to please subscribe click that button and never miss another moment with a chef or industry professional again and while you're at it give us a review we'd appreciate your feedback let us know what you like about us how we can improve and go ahead and share it with your friends all right very good and and if anyone has any other topics or things that they'd like to hear covered on the show please visit us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed and as i like to close out the show a little quote that I like to think about sometimes is from my father saying don't worry about the other guy and what they're doing just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you thanks for listening everyone until next time take care